Welcome to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. It is the week of March 1st. We got out of February, and the Classics started last weekend. We've got lots of things to talk about today. The usual crew with us, as always, Dane Cash on the news. How are you, Dane? Hey, doing good. Abby Mickey, hanging out with Taylor Swift. My queen. There she is. (laughs) She's right behind you. James Wong has done some uh, redecorating I, in your fake living room. I have. I have. I, I, I'm just going to close my eyes and imagine that this Google modern living room background is my actual living room. And surprise, surprise, the internet in France is bad, and Shoddy can barely hear us. <laughs> How you doing, Shoddy? Sorry, I can't hear you what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Shadi's just been coming in and out of our little our little Google Meet call all morning as his as his French Wi-Fi comes and goes. It's painful, very painful. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about Omloop and Kern Brussels Kern. We're going to talk about the end of the UAE tour. We're going to talk about an ambulance that ended up on course at Ardèche. We're going to look ahead to Strada Bianca, which is pretty exciting coming up this weekend. Plus. In this week's Nerd Nuggets, a Dash bike subscription service in the UK, does it make more sense to pay for using a bike rather than owning a bike? We're going to talk about that at the end of the show today. But before we go anywhere, Shadi, what are we learning about Continental this week? Like every week, people. Get yourself comfortable because I'm going to tell you about Continental. You see, we're getting the pronunciation right now i think okay tires can obviously make a real difference when it comes to wet roads the wrong decision can end up in uh well a muddy embankment ripped clothes ripped body damaged body abby apparently you know about this don't you (laughs) it was the opening weekend of the northern cobbles uh this season uh, and it's seen some good weather so far it's not been too bad at all compared to other uh opening seasons up in the north but if it had been wet weather which continental tires would have been the best option well the pros favor the competition tubulars uh, with both black chili compound rubber and vectron liquid crystal polymer the competition is the number one pick for the professional peloton even on wet roads Continental's Black Chili improves rolling resistance without compromising grip and the Vectron Crystal Polymer makes the tyres extra strong but also lighter than traditional nylon thread. There we are, it's like tyre alchemy, isn't it? Super fast, super strong, super grippy, just what you want. I have mentioned this previously, uh, you know, before Conti was a sponsor of the podcast, so it's legit. But there's actually quite a few professional teams over the years that have purchased Conti tires, even when they were not the sponsor, specifically for wet stages. Uh, I'm thinking back to actually, well, in the Team Sky era, yeah. they did this for a little while, uh, particularly after a, a particularly disastrous day at Paris Nice that was in the rain, where they had a bunch of riders fall down. I think Richie Port fell down, a couple others fell down. And then, lo and behold, uh, the whole team was on Conti. A couple of weeks later in the rest of the Spring Classic. So this is an actual thing. It's a great wet weather tire, the Conti competition. I have heard that Continental, when they sell tires to teams that are not sponsored by Continental, that they go ahead and include a box of Sharpies to go with them. 
This is an actual thing. Yeah, because they Sharpie out the, the logo on the side to keep all the sponsors happy. So there you go. Conti tires, good and wet weather. That is a fun game walking around the pits at a classics race looking for blacked out tires. Seeing who are you who's using what they shouldn't be using. There are lots of them. I just followed the smell of Sharpie. <laughs> Shoddy, thank you for our weekly continental education. Let's move on with the show. All right, Dane. We're going to drop straight into the news here. We had a ton of racing since our last episode, including opening weekend, the first weekend of the classics, Omloop Het Newsblad, a sort of mini Tour of Flanders, in fact, uses the the old Tour of Flanders finish, uh, the Muir van Gerdsbergen, and then over to the Bosberg and into Ninova. Uh, so actually... Very much like, like I said, like the old Flanders, the original Flanders. And then Kern Brussels Kern, known as a Sprinters Classic. Talk me through it. What happened at Omloop? Yeah, uh, Omloop ended up being a sprint for the men, which is not a typical outcome for that race. We've seen a lot of uh, very active Omloops, Het Nusblad, Omloop Het Nusblads over the last few years, uh, where, yeah, we had a small group get away, then they're was maybe a small sprint for the win, but uh, this year was a real big sprint. Uh, that does not mean, however, that it was not an exciting race. There was a lot of activity over the course of the race. There were attacks from, from yeah, uh, it's basically once the once the race got to the sort of heavy uh, cobbled sectors, which basically happens about halfway through the race, uh, about 100 kilometers in, they just hit cobble after cobble, climb after climb. Some of the climbs are cobbled, so you get a little bit of both. Uh, and yeah, there was a lot of action. Uh, there was a point at which uh, there was a very strong group that went up the road, um, closed down the breakaway in the process. That group included, um, yeah, world champion Julian Alaphilippe, the guy who's been the reigning Olympic champion for the last 25 years or so, Greg Van Avermaet, uh, and a number of other big names. Uh, but that move ended up getting closed down. Uh, they didn't Julian Alaphilippe sort of attacked out of it, but then everybody got brought back. Uh, they're going up the uh, Mervon Gerardsbergen, and it's like, okay, now's the time for that big move to go. And nobody forced that much separation. There was an attack from Johnny Moscone, but didn't get that far. And then it kind of became obvious over the last 15K, this is going to come down to a sprint, which was, yeah, like I said, that that's not happened a lot in uh, recent Omloop history. But there were plenty of attacks to get there, so it was an exciting race nonetheless. And the final sprint was uh, pretty interesting to watch. The team that everybody thought was going to win this race, to kind of quick step, uh, just put on a master class through the whole day, really. I mean, they controlled the race. They had attacks from Philippe and uh, Matteo Trentin was doing a lot of work. Uh, and then in the sprint, they just, I mean, they were untouchable. And that, that finale is a very windy finale. A lot, there's a lot of corners in the last 500 meters. So you really need to be well positioned. There's, there's not a lot of opportunity to come up uh, if you're if you've missed out on the positioning battle and they just played it perfectly uh, and Davide Ballerini won handily uh, convincingly by a mile like length yeah uh, it was a it was a nice way for Ballerini to really finish off the day for the quick step team led out by Florian Seneschal uh, was his last lead out man Seneschal finished seventh so you can I mean that that's not easy to do to lead somebody out and then finish that highly um, yeah two two sort of points on Omloop here. So first of all, 
I think part of the reason we saw a sprint is because there was a headwind into Ninov. So there was a headwind up and over the Bosberg and into Ninov. So basically like the whole, kind of the whole last, well, basically from the Muir in, uh, was headwind, which is obviously going to pull the peloton back together, and make you make it more likely that you get a bunch sprint, which we'll get to the women's race in a second, but makes uh, the women's finish even more impressive that that happened despite this headwind. Second point, uh, I did the I was on the D and D, the Daily News Digest duty uh, yesterday, and trying to think of how to how to open it up, and I think that the one of the biggest storylines for me over the weekend was Tom Pitcock uh, had a pretty astounding kind of opening weekend for him in his first races as a as a road racer with the Ineos Grenadiers. So obviously Tom uh, spent the entire winter kind of duking it out with Wout van Aert and Matthew Vanderpoel. Uh, comes from obviously the cross world just like them and then bridged to that very, very strong breakaway on Saturday at Onloop, and then finished third in the bunch sprint at Kern, Brussels Kern on Sunday. The thing to keep in mind about Pitcock is that like these races kind of shouldn't really work for him. He's 58 kilos. He's under 130 pounds. He's like five foot three or five foot two. He literally comes up to the shoulder of most of the riders who are contesting in these classics. And so... He's kind of like a. I, I compared him in the D and D yesterday to to like a Paolo Bettini kind of figure, like a pretty small guy who can still do a decent ride apparently on the cobblestones, but is probably going to truly excel elsewhere. So, anyway, it's kind of a just a just a story I'm interested to keep an eye on throughout this year because he's clearly another super talent on kind of the same level as like a Watfener or a Matthew Vanderpool, right? He's going to affect every single bike race that he enters that he wants to affect the question for me because he's so young because we haven't seen much of him in the road is sort of where he truly shines and where we're going to see him sort of really do damage to the peloton because if he's able to do that at omloop over over cobbles at 58 kilos i think that the rest of the peloton should be very concerned over what he's going to do to them at liege and races like that potentially even things like short stage races so yeah, keep an eye on Tom Pidcock. He's going to be a fascinating talent. Can I just throw me yeah uh, view out on another British talent that exceeded anything uh, than what we would have thought he would have done this weekend, and that is Jake Stewart. A lot of people won't recognise his name, uh, and I'm actually kicking myself big style because I was going to reach out to him last season when he was riding for the Francis de Jour Continental team uh, to chat to him about basically being a development rider. Um, and he got third at Onloop in the sprint, which is mind-bending. He actually he, he has had a, a, a go out of the classics campaign late last year when he was thrown into uh, Ghent-Wevelgum, where I think Dane's throwing his fingers up at me. What, what do you want to say, Dane? Cor- it's say- c- correction corner. He was second. He's even better than correction. you said. Oh, he's second. Correction corner, he was second. Yeah. Yep. Holy moly, that's even better. There we go then. Second, the flipping is, it's just mind-bending. That's even better, isn't it? It's just mind-bending how, how, how good he is. Um, he's gone from the British 100% me uh, talent programme, doing a bit of track, doing a bit of road in 2018. And then he went straight to the Francis de Jour Continental team in 2019. 2020, he rode for half the season with the Continental team. And then in... 
well, not half a year, um, November, December, no, let me get the month right, October, he went and uh, joined the World Tour team and rode Gent Wevelgem at the latter end of the season then and showed good form then. So, yeah, I think he's going to be a very big talent. He's showing promise already. And he, you look at his results from the under-23er versions of the Cobble Classics and he's got some really good results. He's got like eight fat, the under-23 Roubaix, stuff like that. It's is a name to watch. If not this season, definitely two, three seasons down the road. Agreed. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting names in that top 10. Uh, uh, Jake Stewart, a big one, I think. Uh, Stefan Marco was third, and he is obviously on a new team this year, went over to Israel Startup Nation, won the race back in 2012. I think that was the big result that really put him on the map. Uh, and yeah, he finished third on Saturday, so that was nice from him. Heinrich Hausler was fourth, which... Hell yeah! Everybody likes to see Heinrich Hauser do well, uh, and he's going to win Rubé. So a lot of yeah, a lot of good names in the in the top ten there. Is that I'm calling it now? Is that down to him doing cycle Hausler's cross? winning Rubé. He did cycle cross this winter for the first time apparently, and absolutely loved yeah. it. He even went to the world. Yeah, there's something to that. I think. All kinds of riders. I mean, I think everyone's just looking at Vanderpool and, and Welfenaert, and they're like, I want a piece of that action, right? We had Fabio Aru going back to cross. We had Heinrich Hausler doing a bit of cross. Turns out some high intensity over the winter might be might be good for the form. Uh, I love seeing Hausler up there. He's riding well, riding smart the entire time. And I, I have called him to win Roubaix, I think, every year for the last three or four years because I'm just, you know, if I ever get that one right, It'll be the call of the century, really. And so I'm gonna I'm sticking with it. Heinrich Hausler gonna win Paris Roubaix twenty twenty one. He's gonna do it. That'd be a popular win. Blank stare. It'd be a popular (laughs) win. Should we move on to Yeah, we should move on to Omloop Women's. Uh which Abby, I think you can handle. Uh yeah, you wrote the report. Thank you. So you're probably the best equipped to, you know. Tell us what happened since you already wrote a whole story about. It. Thank you so much for this honor. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, thanks for writing the report because that that it's splitting that that work on Saturday morning was a lot easier. Uh, it was like 5 p.m. for me. So fair. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a pretty straightforward start to the race at 44 kilometers to go on the Molenberg. The first cobbled climb of the day is where the real action started to take place. Anna Vandenbregen jumped on the front and set a pace that split the race enough that it it wasn't really that big of a split until everyone realized that Anamiek Van Vluten and Lizzie Dagnan, who were both favorites going into the race, had been caught behind the split. Um, After the cobbled climb, there was two kilometers long of cobbles, which Chantal Vandenberg Black, Christine Magyarus, and Vandenbregen, so all three SD Works riders, just got on the front and set a pace that meant that basically Dagnan and Van Vluten couldn't get back onto the lead of the race. So they eliminated some pretty heavy competition there. After that, it was really like the SD work show. They were setting the pace a lot of the time. And then when the climbs started happening, there was three climbs back to back to back and they couldn't really set a pace anymore. They sent Demi Volering off the front, one of their new recruits. She was off the front for a really long time being chased by Live Racing and Canyon Stram and uh, 
FDJ had multiple riders in the break behind. The live racing, they had the most motivation to, to bring Volering back with Kopecky in the group, who showed incredible form last year at the end of the season and looked amazing in Omloop. She was basically leading the leading the pace up the Muir Kapel Muir, which was really, really impressive from someone who is a track rider and has really turned herself into another type of cyclist at this point. It was really aggressive for a while. And then Vanderbregen attacked with about 14 kilometers to go. She just did the Vanderbregen thing where she just attacked and nobody could match her. Nobody could follow her. She just went and she went solo and she won solo. The group behind was really disorganized there, even though there was multiple riders from Liv, multiple riders from Canyon SRAM, they just couldn't really organize to chase her back. And yeah, it was a really, like Kaylee said, a really impressive ride by Vanderbregen, who was without question the best cyclist of 2020, I think, like men's and women's with the amount of victories that she had, um, including both world world championships. And yeah, in the sprint, the Danish national champion Emma Norsgaard took second and Vanda Bregen's teammate Amy Peters took third. Good result for Norsgaard and Movistar. Really, really good result Uh, for her, yeah. Yeah, so obviously... Movistar sort of taking its step up this year, right? They signed Enemy Van Vluten. And uh, it's good to see that they also, you know, they brought in some other talent that is going to be able to support Anamique throughout the year. That was obvious, obvious given the second place on Saturday. Yeah, they brought the Emma is a new recruit to Movistar as well as Leah Thomas. And Emma's really an incredible young talent. I think that in the future, she's going to be one to watch for. For, I mean, why is it that the Danes have such good riders? Like, there's so many good Danish riders. And it was really, really cool at the end of the race. The first person to come up and hug Emma like she just won the race was Cecile Utrecht Ludwig, who was her teammate on Bigla for multiple years and is obviously, obviously also Danish. So it was a really, really touching moment to see, you know, they ride for different teams, but we all friends. I don't know, Dane, as our chief Dane correspondent, yeah. what do you think? I wish I had all the answers to why other Danes <laughs> are good at uh, riding their bikes. Uh, maybe one day I'll figure that out. Sorry, that was just that was really poor, but I had to. It was just on a plate for me. Yeah, no, I think and I think I it was could, good. I think I it was excellent, it. actually. Okay. Dave Rome would have been you. proud of you, Appreciate Kaylee. <laughs> can we uh, can we talk about how? How Anna Vanderbregen is clearly just rolling in money after that Omloop win. <laughs> you mean her nine hundred and fifty euros or I whatever think it was she got? Nine hundred and thirty euros, which I nine hundred and thirty euros, which I calculated to be just under one seventeenth the amount that Davide Ballerini took home. <sighs> That's pretty standard. Yeah, Un- color me unsurprised. Yeah. Yeah, it you know like there are steps in the right direction, right? Like we can applaud some things, like the fact that we watched the women's race on live television, also that the women's race came after the men's race, which I really like because what often happened uh, previously was the women's race would go before the men's race, and at least here in the U.S., this is not relevant to to Europeans, but in the U S the, the women's race would finish at like five 30 in the morning or something like that. And you'd miss this entire American audience that could potentially watch it. 
having the women's race after the men's race, so both finish at a time you could watch, was excellent. And the fact that we got live coverage was excellent. However, the massive disparity in prize winnings that doesn't make a ton of sense. Like I I don't know how they I don't know how they do that math and 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 wrap it up and they're like, Yeah, this is this seems fair. <laughs> so we have seventeen times the money for the male winner as the as the female winner. That doesn't I just don't know how they end up there and feel good about themselves. Well I baby steps though. My my positive change my, in some areas, just not that one. My guess is if you are of the opinion that the women are lucky to be having a race at all, period, then you probably make it pretty easy to justify to yourself that they won one seventeenth the amount of money. Very true. I just don't Very understand true. why they couldn't, like, look, let's not sit here and pretend that Deconic Quickstep is like, hell yeah, we won this great prize money. Like, we're going to go spend it on whatever. That's like pocket change to them. Whereas a women's rider won that much money, it would actually make a like pretty significant difference in the amount of prize money they get when they pool all the prize money and like divvy it out amongst themselves. However they do it, every team does it differently. And I'm sure that Anna Vanderbregen is not one of those riders who that is going to make a difference. Like I pray to God or to, I don't know, whatever that she, <laughs> that she is making enough that that wouldn't make a difference. But yeah, I don't understand why they can't just cut like a couple K off of the men's and throw it on the women's, especially if the race is ran by the same people. Yeah, so so just to step backward real quick, Abby, could you briefly explain sort of how the race winnings usually divvied up just for, very briefly? Yeah, it, it totally depends on the team. But for example, uh, when I was racing, we had whoever on one team, we did whoever was in the race got a cut of the prize money. So we'd split it, say there was six riders in the race, we'd split it by seven and the seventh share would go to the staff. So the mechanics and the soigneurs, and then you'd get, you know, one sixth of the prize money, um, from the races that you did. And, Another team that I was on pooled all of the prize money. And at the end of the year, you got a cut from all of the prize. They cut all of the prize money by whatever, 12, because there was 11 girls on the team. And the 12th share went to the st- all of the staff, except for the director. And then the 11 went to the riders. Hmm. So, that, yeah, that, that's sort of one of two ways that it's possibly working here. Uh, it is worth noting that so you know sixteen was it sixteen thousand ish for the men's race nine hundred and thirty something for the women's race that sixteen k even and I think this is this is basically what Abby was saying is is still tiny compared to like the total amount of of prize winnings that a men's team is going to take home from major races so for example so, like the top the top men's teams in the Tour de France are going to walk away with somewhere in the neighborhood of half a million to one point five million in total prize money, right? Like the winner of the Tour de France, I think it gets gets about half a mil, something like that. Uh, we're talking about much, much, much larger chunks of money, which then makes the disparity at a smaller race like this kind of even more absurd, right? Because we're, ta- we're not talking about, as Abby said, life-changing money for most of the, of the male professionals, but we are talking about money that could probably be coming quite handy for a lot of the women's peloton so that kind of morally ethically just makes it even more dubious to to have this massive disparity and again i'm just not really sure like why 
I don't know how they end up at that and just think that it's okay. Elgin, uh, Elgin. It's such a small amount of money in the in the grand scheme of how much they're spending to put this race on that it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you know, if if it's enough to buy groceries at the end of the race to make dinner for their families, then that that's good, right? That 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 makes sense, right? Well, yeah, because uh, <laughs> this is a thing as well. They'd probably be staying in an Airbnb or something, the women's team, where the men are being looked after in nice, fancy hotels. So yeah, they're going to need the money to be able to pop down the um, proxy supermarket and get the food because they're not in a nice <laughs> hotel. That's for sure. It's just a fucking joke, isn't it? End of the day. An added thought is that the prize money for the men's race is more than the minimum yearly salary set forth by the UCI for a women's world tour team. <laughs> yep. By about a thousand bucks, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. They will increase it eventually, but the base minimum salary at the moment, I'm I believe, I don't think they increased it this year, is fifteen K. Well Fun times. Yeah. Fun times. Is that be- is that before tax? Yeah, that's before tax. Yeah. Kudos in small and specific areas. Kudos where kudos are due, which is mostly in, in related to broadcast, which is an investment from the race organizer. And, you know, slow clap for that. However, I, I don't I don't understand how you do that good thing and then not realize that this this other problem that's not going to cost you that much money to solve uh, couldn't be solved. I don't understand how you end up at, the, at that particular place. So we'll leave it at that disappointing um absurd really it just just, it just doesn't make any sense it's crap uh it's crap yeah we'll we'll leave it at that though uh hopefully that's the next thing that they work on fixing uh it'd be nice if they just fix it all at the same time but that doesn't appear to be what's going to happen so moving on should we talk kern yeah kayla you did the kern of brussels kern report why don't you tell us what's happened I did the Kerner Brussels Kerner report. Uh, well, so the Sprinters Classic Kerner Brussels Kerner. Uh, you know, it's got a fair number of cobblestones and things like that. Usually, some gnarly headwinds. I'm thinking back to, I believe it was 2012, was the year when some crazy storm blew in and blew riders off the road and things like that. That can often happen at Kerner, but this year didn't. Weather was quite nice, only a little bit windy. Uh, the wind did play a role. There was a a move near the end of five riders, including uh, Matthew Vanderpool and Jonathan Narvaez, and that was basically swallowed up at about 1.6 kilometers to go because the because they sort of turned into a cross headwind. Uh, just about 400 300 meters from the finish, it's a hard left turn, and they turned into a cross tailwind. Uh, Trek Segafredo was on the left side of the peloton, perfectly situated, perfectly hidden from that cross tailwind, which is coming from the right at that point. And Jasper Stoyven pulled a perfect lead out for former world champion Mess Peterson, who crossed the line with quite a bit of room to spare. And as I mentioned before, uh, not too far behind was Tiny Tom Pitcock doing a pretty impressive sprint out of that reduced bunch. Goodbye, Grace. Lots of wind, lots of things happening, but in the end, finished roughly as we would expect it. Also, Trek Segafredo kind of saved their weekend. They had a pretty awful Saturday. They, I think their top rider at Omloop in the men's race was, was 57th or something like that. They had a pretty bad day. Uh, so to turn that around and and pull a, a 
literally a perfect lead out and sprint and win Kerna. Kind of saved their saved their opening weekend, which is good to see. Thanks to a Dane, nonetheless. Thanks to another Dane. Yeah, just Danes everywhere. Oh. I would argue thanks to a Jasper Stoyven, but well, that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Peterson is pretty fast. You got to be fast to finish it off. I mean, if Jasper Stoyven led me led this particular Dane out, it would not have been a win, right? I would have been. <laughs> oh, bye, Jasper. See you. Uh, but Mess Peterson doesn't say that because he's also extremely fast. Which, by the way, I th- I'm really looking forward to the rest of the classic season because you've got a lot of fun art and Matthew Vanderpool and Mag- and Mess Peterson who are all very quick. And because of that, very hopefully fast. they'll all attack each other and make things interesting out on the road. I am not going to lie. Sagan. With like 80, he's still racing. Jesus, with like 83 <laughs> kilometers to go or whatever. When uh, Matthew Vanderpool was off the front, um, I was like. I really hope he doesn't win this race. And for so long, it looked like they were going to stay away. It was really, really close. And then once they swallowed him up, I was like, I really hope that Matthew Manderfull wins this race because it would have just been like so funny. Pulling Amstel again. Yeah, yep. it did look like that was a that was a possibility. Uh, but he was human. Good bike race. I enjoyed watching over the weekend. Both of them. All of them. Uh all, all three races? Excellent bike racing. There was a bit of other racing. Yeah. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't catch the end of the UAE Tour. It, it ended with a sprint uh, and overall victory from the Tour de France champion. Yeah, it was a pretty... I mean, the, the, there were a lot of big names in the UAE Tour this year, and they did a lot. They were, they were active. They, they made the race pretty interesting to watch. Uh, you know, the race decided to put in an individual time trial this year. Uh, which in a, in a week-long stage race can be a tough call because it can make a, such a big difference. It can make it kind of hard for the rest of the race to matter that much. And it, it did make a big difference. Uh, Tadej Pogacar, you may recall from last year's Tour de France, is pretty good at time trialing. And he was pretty good at time trialing at the UAE Tour. And he took a big Better lead. Better than Primoz Roglic. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he took a big lead at the UAE Tour in the time trial. And he then defended his lead with the great performance on the Jebel Hafid climb, which is the sort of iconic... The climb that they do in this race uh, so often. Um, and he also did a great ride up the Jebel Jais, which is the highest climb in the UAE. Uh, so Tadej Pogacar in February, already looking really strong. And Adam Yates, last year's winner on a new team, Ineos Grenadiers this year, uh, looked good. Uh, he, he On the climbs, he was right with Pogacar on both of those big climbs. But... Uh, Pogacar's performance in the time trial really separated him, and it, it wasn't really close in the GC. Uh, but it was nice to see such a big name take the overall win, uh, and a number of big names up there uh, in, in the GC battle. Uh, Joao Almeida, who was uh, pretty strong at last year's Giro, up there. Uh, Chris Harper up there for Jumbo Visma. Nielsen Palace for EF. Yeah, so there were a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of good names up there in the top 10 in the overall. And there was also... Uh, Pretty entertaining sprint battles. We usually get that at the UAE Tour. There are usually three, four sprint stages. Uh, Sam Bennett took two of them this year. Uh, took his first two wins of the year. Uh, Michael Morkow was pretty instrumental. Speaking of Takuna Quickstep leadouts, uh, in in doing some great work for Sam Bennett. And then Caleb Ewan got his first win of the year on the last stage of the race in Abu Dhabi. Uh, so both of those riders looking very good to start off the season. Uh, yeah, just all around great performances from a lot of the very big names, which... I'm sure the UAE Tour organizers like to see that because they had a lot of big names come to their race and they delivered. There we go. 
UAE tour. It's a weird season when we have to like care about the UAE tour. Well, is what it is. <laughs> uh, I've got a couple other notes on my little list here. There's an ambulance on course at Ardesh? Yes. What happened here? Going the way that the peloton was not going. They went opposite mm. directions. Uh, yeah, at, at the Fallen Ardesh. Ambulance Seminary. on course. And on a corner, it was like, a, it wasn't a hard, it was more of a curve. And then there's an ambulance coming around. Uh, and fortunately, uh, nobody got seriously injured. Uh, the, the ambulance was far enough over that the peloton was able to avoid it. And the other vehicles, I think, as far as I, as far as I know, were able to avoid it. There was a crash. There was a crash, yep. Yeah, but what's interesting about about this, so I was kind of keeping up with the Twitter debate about this. I found it very fascinating. Um, Because the ambulance was a, a, like, official vehicle, like police, ambulance, stuff like that. Emergency truck. It was actually a fire truck. Because it was an emergency vehicle, they have the right of way. So the fact that the fire truck or whatever it was, was on course was not the problem it had a flashing blue light on top of it so it did have some kind of signaling um but the riders didn't get any indication on the radio from the directors who didn't get any indication from the race comms that there was an ambulance coming the opposite direction which is that's therein lies the problem the problem isn't that the, the car was on course going the wrong direction it was that nobody knew that there was a Car on course going the wrong direction. Right, because an emergency vehicle can shut down a bike race if it needs to. Correct. It can cross a bike race. It can be in the middle of a bike race. It has the right of way over a bike race. But the bike race has an obligation to tell the people in the bike race that they might run into an ambulance soon. And that's the that's what didn't happen. I think the rule is they have is to great. say 3K ahead of time. Yeah. Which, granted, maybe the ambulance had just entered the course. You know, it's not, it's not always possible, but... Still a failure of communication uh, that could have ended very, very poorly, Uh, which considering all of the recent discussion of rider safety, you know, banning of the puppy paws, banning of the super tuck, uh, all the other things that are the the various rules around, you know, finish shoots and things like that. This seems to be one that they missed. So hopefully they sort themselves out for next time. I believe that's called bad optics. That is bad optics. That's not ideal. Did you guys also see the literal puppy on course for KBK? An actual puppy ran into the course on KBK in a corner, causing an EF rider to crash. Actually, I don't know if the two things were related, but it looked like it on on the coverage. Did the EF rider like crash to avoid the puppy? Like they they sacrificed themselves for the puppy? They were just they were going through a corner after a descent where there had been trees overhead, which always makes the makes the vision not great. I'm really great with words today. <laughs> um, and so they were going around a corner, and a little black dog ran into the peloton barking, and then the owner ran in to chase the dog and then the ef rider was on the ground after the corner so not entirely sure what happened there but. let's just pretend that that ef rider was a hero and <laughs> threw themselves to the tarmac to avoid killing the tiny puppy we'll just go with that story all right yeah, moving on yeah uh 
we can move on to the Giro announced its route uh, earlier this week. Uh, let's talk about it for the Giro when that happens in, in a yeah. few months. Uh, it's in Italy. Yeah, that's a key part of the route. Um, yep. Yeah. It goes all over the place. So up, up, down, up, down, north, south, east, west in Italy. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about the details later. Goes up some hills, go down, know goes now. down some hills. Yeah. Yeah. There's probably some potholes because it's Italy. You know, we'll, 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 we'll tell you all about it when the Giro is closer. Okay. Speaking of Italy, uh, Strada Bianca coming up, which is always fun. Everybody likes that race. Uh, it's supposed to rain. Which will make it interesting riding on yeah. white roads. When you when you call your when your race is literally named for the, the color of the road and then that changes because it gets muddy. Uh, it'll be brown roads. Yeah. Strada Marone. Yeah. Marone. Yeah. Strada, Strada Marone. So that'll be interesting. Yeah. It's a really big uh like really large pendulum shift from last year's strata, which was brutally hot. Yeah. <laughs> and very dry. <laughs> Because it was in August. Correct. Right? It was like August 1st yeah. or something. Oh, this is a better time to have this race in this particular part of the world. Although, it, yeah, it sounds like it could be nasty this weekend. Still, you know, one of the best races all year. We'll be, we'll definitely be tuning in. We'll bring you coverage from that, obviously, next week's pod. I just want to mention that as a tech person who normally around this time of year would be flying across the pond and looking forward to checking out a bunch of pro bikes at bigger northern classic races i'm a little bummed that i'm not going to be there this year because i will say as much as i have enjoyed being home like this is the most i've been home in 16 years um i'm a little sad that i'm not going to be there because you know thinking of what the conditions are going to be like at strada bianchi and what those bikes are going to be like at the end of the day i would love to see pictures of that i would love to be taking pictures yeah i'm starting to get the fomo yeah, but I'm not going anywhere this spring. <laughs> <laughs> Staying right here. Well, the way things are going, none of us are going going to be going anywhere this spring again. No, none of us are going anywhere. Speak for, for yourself. Lot, well, Abby might be. Gonna Dave do might be. Everything I can do to get to yeah. the first ever women's Perry Roubaix. Oh uh, well, that's true. Oh yeah, we're definitely sending you there, hundred percent. That is the first time hearing about it, but I'd already written it on the calendar. So <laughs> <laughs> already purchased tickets, already invoiced them. Uh, you know. All right, let's move on. Strata this weekend, like I said, very excited. It's time for a debate. Welcome to another episode of CT Debates. We've got we've got a big one here today. We are debating the best. Rider transfer the women's peloton into 2021, meaning which team made the best decision pulling on which rider? Our two contestants in the blue square, Abby Mickey. Your square's not up. Roll with it. In the red square, news editor Dane Cash. We're. I don't have a coin flip. Hey Siri. Uh-huh. Flip a coin? It's heads. Wait, neither you of gotta, us picked. You gotta call it, and, and then, yeah. Uh, Abby cheated, so Dane goes first. Dane, would you like to, would, would you like to go, would you like to go first or second in the debate? I'm gonna defer. Best... I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the kickoff in the second half. 
Sorry, okay. Australian listeners, that's an American football reference. Uh, deal with it. I didn't get it either. So, <laughs> Abby, you're going first. Abby, you will be. You have one minute to make your case for the best rider transfer into 2021, and then Dane will get a minute, and then we will rebut, and then we will vote on the internet to decide who is better at this. Abby. Three, two, one, go. All right, the best rider transfer of 2021 is definitely Demi Vollering moving up from the Park Hotel Valkenburg team into a world tour team onto SD Works, arguably one of the best women's teams ever. They have been dominant on the scene since the team Bowles Dolmans, previously Bowles Dolmans, basically started. She is riding underneath. Anna Vandebregen, the best cyclist in the world right now. She just won. Dem- oh, God, this is the worst. <laughs> Anna Vandebregen just won Omelie Pep Newsblad, and Demi Bollering was instrumental in her win there. She was unbelievable. When looking at a transfer, I think you need to look at the future, not the past, and that's why I think Demi Bollering is an amazing transfer for what she has coming for her. Time. She's barely scratched the surface. Damn it. <laughs> I have an admission to make. What, you stopped me five seconds early? <laughs> no, I forgot to start the timer, so I was just counting in my head. So well, were we I close? five more seconds. Okay. No. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Dane, you have one minute to rebut. Who is your best router transfer of 2021? Yeah, all right, I'll, I'll count myself in. Is that how this yep. works? Yep. All right. I'm going to, I have a timer in front of me here, so, you know. As do I. Okay. okay. Right. Can I redo mine? Okay, great. No. Dane. Yeah. All right. I'll count myself in. Three, two, one. Here we go. The best rider transfer of this past transfer season is Annemiek van Uh Going to the Movistar team from the Mitchelton Scott team. Movistar uh, recently formed the women's team. It's only been around for a few years. They decided to make a big step forward this past transfer season. They signed some big names. The biggest one, obviously, Annemiek van Vleuten, who the previous year was uh, almost unstoppable. Uh, 2020 was very good, although she had some injury issues. She crashed Giro Rosa. She was looking so good at the Giro Rosa, and then, you know, things didn't go the way she'd hoped. But I think still a rider who is going to be at the top of her game for another few years. Yes, Annemiek van Vleuten is 38, but it's a two-year contract. Perfect amount of time for Annemiek van Vleuten to continue to rock at the top level. Uh, She can win any kind of race, and I think she's going to continue to do so. And if this team is looking to boost their profile... There's really nobody better to do it uh, than signing Annemiek van Vleuten, who also brings the veteran presence for the future looking ahead. Whoa. How do I stop it? There we go. I really prefer to be the moderator in these debates. (laughs) Being on the debate side is very stressful. Uh, Like I said last time, my my heart rate spiked when I was on the debate. I was was very stressed out about this whole thing. So, Abby, you get 30 seconds to rebut. Why is Demi Vollering and not Annemiek van Vluten the best transfer of 2021? All right. Three, two, one, go. As I said... 
The best transfer looks to the future and not the past. Annemiek van Vluten has had a great couple seasons, sure, but she ended last year on a bad note. She had a bad race at Omloop, had newsblad right off the bat. Demi Bollering, an amazing start to the season. She has her entire career ahead of her. She's going to be riding under some of the best riders in the world. They're going to teach her their ways. I think we only have good things to see from Demi Bollering in the past, and Annemiek van Vluten maybe seen her best years. Time. <laughs> I'm impressed. Dane? Me too, honestly. <laughs> Dane, your final rebuttal. Make the case for enemy Van Vluten. And, and how long do I have? 30 seconds? Is that right? Yeah. All right. I'll count my son. Here, here we go. Uh, three, two, one. Here we go. Uh, Demi Volering is a great rider. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing Demi Volering in the future. I think she's got a lot to bring to the table, but she's never won a World Tour race. Uh, I think she's got... I think she's got a, a couple of wins ahead of her for sure, uh, but SD Works bringing her on, I don't think that's going to really change the makeup of what is already the dominant team in the Peloton as much as bringing on Annemiek van Vloyten to a team that really needs a star rider like Annemiek van Vloyten. Demi Vollering's got great things ahead, but is she going to win as much as, Mar as, as Annemiek van Vloyten in the next year or two? I, I, I don't think so. I think so. <laughs> My timer noise is so nice. I like even it's, wrote it's down pleasant. all these yeah. fancy notes and I couldn't even read them because I was too nervous. Oh, it's fine. But you came it's prepared fine. and that's the important I, thing. A for effort. Exactly. All right. So that was our debate for this week. CT debate for this week. Make sure you head over to the Cycling Tips Twitter account, which is where the poll will be, where you can vote. Was Abby correct in her support of Demi Vollering switch to SD Works or... Was Dane Cash correct in Annemiek van Vluten's move to Movistar? Basically, are you stuck in the past or are you looking forward to the future? This feels like a post-debate debate. I don't know here, Abby. You can't continue to make your case after we're done. It's it's over. It's we got to shake hands and walk off the stage at this point. Wave yep. to the cameras, uh, you know. I could go even dirtier, and I could say, nope. "Do you actually know things about women's cycling?" Oh, you, you could you do just that. Pick the top <laughs> you, name. You could do that, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't. That's do that. the that's the end of today's cycling tips debate. And if you're catching this on the podcast, make sure you head over to our YouTube, which is where this particular debate lives. You can watch us debate in real time over on the cycling tips YouTube page. Subscribe, like, thumbs up, little hit the little bell, whatever it is that you do on YouTube. And with that. We're calling it a debate. Well done, team. Good job, Dane. Good job, Abby. We'll be back next week with another one. Well, those were some excellent arguments from Dane and Abby there. Just fantastic. Uh, I I was really I was really surprised by Abby's rebuttal. I couldn't believe that she that she said that her language was atrocious wasn't it absolutely atrocious right <laughs> only right? swear words with her <laughs> foul mouth okay beep, we beep, have to let the listeners beep. we have to let the listeners in on our stupid joke here which is that we actually record the debate separately from the rest of the podcast not oh we haven't heard any of it yet it hasn't actually happened <laughs> you've heard it but in the recording time thanks to editing magic we have not heard it yet but so, you know, you're going to have to use some foul language jokes. anyway. 
Yeah, so now Abby has to use foul language because we've set her set her up for it. I can't. So. I'm not talking about sexism. It's the only time that I can use the foul language. <laughs> you can't. You can't use foul language when I can't just pull it out of nowhere. Really heated about mm. rider transfers. No. That's disappointing. All right, let's get into today's nerd nugget. Nerd alert! 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 James, what are you talking about? Uh, We have brought up on occasion in the past the idea that, you know, with bike prices getting to be the way that they are, that, you know, maybe we should consider like paying for using a bike instead of owning a bike, sort of like, you know, leasing a car instead of owning a car. I mean, it's like, let's face it. I mean, there's this sort of the saying that you that you want to own a an asset that appreciates instead of owning an asset that depreciates. Um, and in the UK, uh, they have long had this cycle to work scheme that is a, a sort of a, a setup between the government and employers to get more people on bicycles to commute. And there is a company that uh, I became aware of a few weeks ago called Dash in the UK. And basically what they have is sort of a, a subscription model, essentially, for getting people on pretty nice commuter bikes to get people back and forth to work without having to actually pay for the whole bike. Um, so I, I chatted with them to talk about this and you know to get a little bit more info. And it sounded pretty interesting because what I really wanted to find out was not so much how this was going to go in terms of commuting bikes, but whether this could expand into other bikes as well. So let's take a listen to that. Jamie, can you first explain to me how this whole Dash program works? Yeah, sure. God, great, great question. So, um, so we are a subscription e-bike company, and we're compatible with what's known in the UK as the Cycle to Work scheme. And what that requires is that your employer basically deducts part of your your monthly salary, so you get to pay out of your your pre-tax earnings, which is fantastic. Um, and they they take that money off of you and they give it to us. So the first step in any Dash subscription is to get the employer to sign up to our, our platform. It takes them um, as little as 10 minutes, if not, if not less, and about 30 clicks. Um, and then they are up and running with their very own Cycle to Work platform, which they can share with their employees. Employees go on there, choose their bike, much like you know, going on Amazon or, or buying anything online. Choose their bike, choose how long they want to subscribe for, um, click Submit. Uh, the employer that approves and the bikes delivered to their door uh, within a couple of weeks normally. Um, you know, to, at the moment it's a little bit longer just because of, I'm sure over there you, you're having the same problem, but bikes are a, a hot commodity at the moment. So um, getting hold of them can take a little bit longer than normal, but, um, but yeah, it's a couple of weeks. Cool. Okay. So what are the advantages of leasing a bike in this way versus just buying one outright? Because I mean, this cycle to work scheme has been around for mm. quite a while. And my understanding is that it has certainly prompted a lot of people to buy new bicycles, um, but this yeah. is a little bit different. So why would you want to lease one instead? Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's a few different ways to sort of attack this. Um, so the Cycles Work Scheme, you're absolutely right, has been around, I think, since 1999. Um, and it's done very, very well, but it does place quite a lot of burden on employers um, in terms of financially and ad- administratively. So, so what our product is designed to do is to try and reduce as much of those headaches as possible so that we improve on 
um, what's currently around a 7% take-up rate of the cycle-to-work scheme by employers, and we get it up to you know much, much higher. So that's the first thing, is the way we've designed it. But from the consumer's perspective, uh, I think the main advantages of a, a subscription product, and there's, there's probably two different types of, of person that, that goes for this, but there's one type of person that loves to have the latest and greatest bit of technology. And with a subscription product, you are able to keep pace with the rate of innovation because as soon as you, you know, a new bike comes on the market, you can just hand back your old bike to us and you know, choose the latest and greatest one. Um, and we'll, we'll you know, take it to you and deliver it to you at the same time as we pick up the old one. So that's a, a thumbs up for those people. But then because it's a subscription product with you know, all the bells and whistles that come with what our Dash subscription comes with, um, we actually think it's, you know, it's hassle-free for people. So lots of people at the moment, uh, I'm sure you've got this in the US as well, um, are, are looking to sort of get back into cycling to sort of avoid public transport, you know, do their bit for the environment and the planet, um, be a bit, you know, a bit greener. And for those people who are, you know, a bit, bit of a novice to cycling, maybe haven't cycled since they're a child, the idea of having someone take care of all of the bits, which let's be honest, none of us really want to have to deal with, um, is actually quite appealing for a lot of people. So we think there's those two sort of demographics that this really appeals to, plus the fact that we're making it that bit easier for employers um, to hopefully encourage them to, to get the on the scheme and, and promote it to their employees. Right, because if, if I'm understanding your program correctly, then I mean, it really is not that different from leasing an automobile in the sense that you know you take a, you take care of all the maintenance, you you take care of the insurance, you even yeah. buy a helmet if if they want one. Absolutely, that, that's correct. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the automotive industry is, is a good parallel, but um, I think actually mobile phones is probably uh, maybe a better one. You know, no one goes out really and buys a phone. Certainly not in the UK. I don't know what it's like in the US, um, but no one over here buys a phone anymore. You you go to um, you know, the, the big telephone providers and um, you take out a contract and at the end of that contract, you get to hand back that, that old phone and, and you get a shiny new one, um, everything taken care of in the middle. So so that, you know, the, it's that sort of model. And I think um, especially people at the younger younger age of the spectrum, that that's pretty much what they're accustomed to now. Um, but you're right, the Cycle to Work scheme has done wonders for getting people on bikes. And traditionally, it has been a, a sort of a buying experience or much more akin to a buying experience. So how big has your program gotten so far? I mean, how many customers can, How many customers do you have if you're able to disclose that information? Yeah, so I don't want to give exact numbers. Um, we are look, look, we're much smaller than we want to be. Uh, we've, got, we've got quite big ambitions. Um, so we're in the sort of uh, the low hundreds in terms of customers. Um, it says, yeah, that, that, I hope that's fair enough if I, uh, if I leave it at that level of detail. Well, still, I mean, that's, that's still a lot of bikes. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're pretty proud of it. We're, we've got a long way to go, but we're, we're certainly not, um, we're not shy of, you know, we're not, we're not feeling that we're, we're wasting our time. So how long has your program been in place now? Yeah, so, um, so this, this whole thing... Um, and what we do really focus on now came around um, out of COVID, to be honest. Um, what we were doing prior to, to what we currently do basically got wiped out by coronavirus. So we had to take a good long look at ourselves in the mirror and think, what are we doing that could pivot and help people post-coronavirus? So uh, that was back in March that we sort of you know, the, everything kicked off in terms of the pandemic, March uh, 2020. 
Um, it probably took us six or seven months to get the the sort of MVP of of what the platform is now. Um, so that's sort of what taking us to uh, yeah November, October, November time, and we've been running with it ever since. Um, we're actually just about to launch this sort of the the second stage of the platform, which will be quite a significant upgrade, we think, on um, the sort of user experience from both in, both employees and employers. How big? Well, so I think it's pretty clear. Then I mean, the program is still quite new, but. Um... I mean, all things considered, can, you know, you've, you've only been up and running for uh, just a handful of months now, and it sounds like you've got pretty decent adoption rate. Um, how big do you want to be? I mean, how 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 big do you? Yeah, I mean, how how big do you hope for this to be? Um, I would say we've got quite big ambitions. So, uh, sticking with the UK, our main ambition there is to get the take-up rate of the Cycle to Work scheme to a hundred percent of employers. Given it's only at seven percent at the moment. You know that's a fairly fairly big increase, but um, we think that's that needs to be the barb to get as many of us cycling as possible because that's one of our sort of primary missions. In terms of where we go beyond that, another one of our our very big goals, and not sure if we'll ever get there, is to to get our subscription product to the point where our riders are actually paid to be on a dash e bike, which might sound completely ludicrous and impossible. But we've got a few ideas and tricks up our sleeves that we hoping we're working on and hoping to implement over the you know the next few years to to make that a reality. And we may never get there, but certainly with that ethos, we will chip away at the price. And once we get that sort of structure in place, that's something that's beyond the cycle to work scheme. So there's no reason that we couldn't take it over to to your good selves in America. Um, you know, I think the e-bike's been pretty popular over there, and we'd we'd certainly like to, um, you know, take a trip across the pond. I've never I've never really been to the um, west coast of America, so any excuse to get me over there, uh, and I will do. And, and or indeed the Rockies, which I know you're sort of not too far away from. Um, so I think yeah, we've we've we're sort of very focused on the UK at the moment, but certainly we think there is a, a broader broader role that Dash can pay can play in in Europe and um, across the world. I'm guessing you have gotten this question already, maybe from some other people. But I mean, the idea of—I mean, I will, I will say that I, I love the idea of the, the dash concept of kind of lowering the barrier to entry and making it just a lot easier and certainly less of a financial burden to get more people on bikes, e-bikes in particular, to use them yeah. instead of automobiles and that sort of thing. Um, but obviously, there is also this huge push in terms of micro mobility in general, uh, and particularly with like e-scooters and you know subscription bikes, where you sort of just you know pay as you go sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and those programs are quite popular, um, mm-hmm. but they're also quite renowned for being far, far from profit- profitable or sustainable financially. Um, yeah. So. You know your program right now is quite small, but again, I mean, with all those bikes, it's quite a lot of initial expenditure. I'd imagine you have some some capital funding that that you've raised. Um, looking long term, uh, given that right now your program in the UK is dependent on this cycle to work team, I'm assuming you've you've run the numbers. I mean, is this sort of thing financially sustainable on its own, or is it dependable? Is, is it dependent on UK government funding right now? Um, so certainly the UK government funding and the, the sort of the tax incentives that exist around the cycle to work scheme makes it helpful. 
Um, looking long term, this is absolutely not something which is dependent on that. As as we start to implement some of those innovations that we sort of talk, I sort of hinted at, which might get us down to a, a, a net payment figure to riders. You know, as you start to implement some of those, this becomes something which is more than capable of existing in its own ecosystem without any government subsidy. Um, and I think you know you're right to touch on the, the sort of micro mobility providers. What we we are absolutely not trying to to take their space in the market at all. I think if you go forward 10, 15 years, there's a role for all of us to play. I think what those guys offer, and I think that you know I think they'd be the first to admit they've probably got some some speed bumps and some hurdles that they need to get over to to become a sustainable business. But I think you know every confidence that they will get there. And then I think what you'll have is this this you know super flexible range of products provided by all of us in our uh, you know our separate silos that mean that at no point anyone should be confronted with not being able to get on a clean vehicle to get where they need to be now you may choose to use the micro mobility one for a very ad hoc last minute journey that you didn't know you had to do but you or you might use us for for your your regular commuting activities but they they all have their role um to, to play i think and you know I encourage those guys uh, as much as possible um, because I think they've got yeah they've got a very essential role to play. Well, cool. I'm certainly interested to see where this goes because uh, I guess one of the things I'm especially keen to see is how this program progresses as you you start to get more turnover of your existing customers sure. and you start having yeah. to, to pull back some of your some of your bikes that are out in the field and have to refurbish those and that sort of thing. Um, so I guess I guess we'll find out. So maybe we'll have a chat again in a few months. So we'll see. Love to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jamie, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care, James. Yeah, so this whole thing sounds, I mean... It, it basically sounds like what we had been talking about. So instead of someone buying a bike, you pay to just use the bike. And it's sort of like a, it's almost sort of like an expanded bike share sort of thing, except, you know, the bike is always in your possession. They take care of the insurance and the maintenance. And, you know, when you're done with it, they, they take it back and refurbish it and, you know, hand it off to somebody else. Um, and while this company doesn't yet have this sort of program for kind of like sport enthusiast bikes, it does seem... I mean, at least, you know, in, in, from my uneducated view that, you know, if you're looking at a five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand $10,000 bike or something, I don't know. I kind of feel pretty good about not paying that amount of money upfront to buy a bike that I'm going to have for a few years and then have to figure out how to sell it off or, you know, recoup some of the money. But instead, I mean, what they are talking about is sort of, you know, they've modeled it essentially like like you know a mobile phone where you pay a subscription to use it you don't actually own the phone and then when you're done you just hand it back and get a new one i like this we've actually got a scheme just like that here in Annecy. it's um Valanacy or something velo Annecy. i can't remember the exact name of it but it is it's based out of the the train station there's a big bike locker underground you see the green bikes all around town you can rent them for a day, a week, a month, two months. So you see people rolling around on these uh, green bikes as varying different town bikes. And they've, 
changing them themselves. He might have baby seats on the back. He might have a basket on the front. Like they've all done themselves. And they're keeping the bike for different periods of time. And then they hand them back or go to the to the specific bike shop where you can go and get them mended for free of charge because it's all included in the price as well. So, yeah, it's it, it's booming here, big style. Like, I don't know how many years I've had it, but I've been here for two and a half years now and the bikes have always been here. So it's definitely going a little while. Yeah, I mean, I think that those were there when I lived there in in like 2014. So it's been it's been a while now that they've been around. Question for me is would well would you do this with an eight thousand dollar road bike? Like would you lease an eight thousand dollar road bike? Is that something that people would do? Well, here's what I had been thinking of with this because, I mean, this is not something that I would condone. But you know, here in Boulder we have the uh, what is it called like the Specialized Experience Center or something like that. And, you know, you, you pay a nominal fee to demo a bike. I mean, this is common for, for bike shops and stuff too. You pay a nominal fee to demo a bike for a day typically. And then, you know, oftentimes that, that fee is applied toward the purchase of that bike if you end up buying it. Now, let's say, however, that, you know, instead of paying money to demo a bike that you are intending to purchase, let's just say that the, there was a setup where you just paid like a hundred bucks or $150 or $200 or whatever to just use the bike for the day. Or I don't know what the number would end up being. Now, if someone were buying an expensive bike and they look at their riding habits and they know that they are going to ride the crap out of the thing, they're going to just put a ton of time and miles on it. Then yeah, it probably does make sense to buy it because just like, you know, just like buying a car, if you have it for long enough, you know, at some point the numbers kind of work out. Um, but if you are like a lot of people and you want to have a really nice bike, but you maybe don't have a ton of time to, to ride it. Like, let's say you are a two or three, five, you know, four or 5,000 K a year rider instead of a 20 K a year rider, you know, it might make sense to pay for that bike per use instead of just buying it because that's an awful lot of money that you've invested. That's basically just sitting around. That's I can see it working. It uh, throws another brand into mind that you just say that there's a, a shoe company, ON Running or something. They, they seem to sponsor a lot of um, pro teams with their footwear. Um, I don't know how big they are, but they do do a subscription service to trainers, which is every month you pay something like 30 euros a month for your trainers. They say your trainers last, I don't know, 500 600 kilometers and then you send them back and they'll send you a new pair it seems a crazy thing to do for somebody who's just going to go out and maybe take two years to walk 500k but for somebody who's going to be using who runs yeah for 500k a, a, a month triathlon that lot it, it worked perfectly so you wonder if you take that idea and your idea and put them together and yeah you just aim for the people that are doing big miles and it might be worth worth doing something like that for them as well i by no means think that this is going to be this sort of thing would be the norm um but i do think that you know given the right business model and you know the, the right structure the right bikes the right market it it does seem like this sort of thing could work i mean i could certainly see the the, the sort of person that this kind of thing would make sense for i, I guess kind of my only my only kind of issue with this is that oh, there's a lot of issues, Kaylee. It's not perfect. Well, yeah, no, I, I guess 
one of my issue, one of my numerous issues with this is that, uh, you know, like the other option here is is don't buy eight thousand dollar road bikes because pretty much nobody actually needs one, right? And we all like nice bikes, we like good stuff, but we've also particularly here at CT, we've spent quite a bit of time over the last couple of years looking at looking at cheaper options. And and if that's, you know, if, if the financial uh, outlay of a super expensive bike is too much for you, like this seems like maybe not the best solution where you're now on the hook for X amount of dollars every month to ride a similar bike. Like maybe just buy a, a cheaper bike, which are actually really, really good these days, or buy a used bike, which we've talked about before. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's some sort of there's some other issues with this. I think well, I, from a sort of personal finance perspective, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll take away that whole eight thousand dollar figure, for example. I mean, if you look at how if 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 we look at this kind of how they are looking at this, which is sort of like a uh, an, an analog to a mobile phone subscription. I mean, even a nice mobile phone. I mean, they top out at what like twelve hundred dollars or something, which is a relatively inexpensive bike comparatively speaking. Um, But even given the comparatively low cost of mobile phones, people these days don't really buy outright mobile phones as nearly as much as they used to. I mean, you, you, again, you pay to use them and then you want to hand them back because you kind of want the latest and greatest. But if you, if you apply that toward a bike, let's just say even it's a two, $3,000 bike or something. I mean, just given, given the, the rate of change of things that are happening in road bikes and just, you know, kind of the rate of improvement in general, if, if you're able to pay some sort of nominal fee per month or whatever to, to use that bike and then hand it back when you're done and get a fresh one and just continue to pay that fee. I mean, yes, financially in terms of your total outlay, it would be more money. Which we all know. I mean, that's that's how it is with mobile phones, right? Like if if, right. You, if you you know when you calculate it out per month, you end up paying more. But because the per month outlay is lower, then that's a lot easier for people to manage. And you know, for a lot of people, it's not so much the total cost of what they're looking at, but just more like the per month expense. Which, if you look at it that way, I mean, again, I mean, this sort of it seems like it might make more sense for for people. I'm, 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 yeah, and if at the end of the day, if at the end of the day it puts more people on bikes and more people can afford a, a somewhat decent bike, then I think that that's you know a, a good thing. When we're talking about okay, a phone's twelve hundred bucks, and we talk about twelve hundred dollar bikes like they're just bottom of the barrel budget stuff, but like a twelve hundred dollar bike is still an expensive bike. It's a lot of money right? still. It's a lot of money, and so yeah, maybe maybe I guess. You know, we kind of need to, to flip this on its head a little bit and not talk about the eight thousand dollar road bike that a lot of the uh, the Cycling Tips podcast listeners probably interested in, uh, and just think about you know this is a means of getting more people on pretty decent fifteen hundred dollar road bike kind of thing. Uh, you know, that's going to get somebody into the sport and and hopefully into it for life, right? I think that that's. There are a lot of potential upsides. Yeah. Here. So again, I mean, there there are a lot of questions I have about this program. It's very new. Um, I am really curious to see if it will work. Um, again, they haven't yet expanded into kind of like, like sport enthusiast bike sort of things. Um, but you know, I'm I'm going to be watching this one to see what happens because I mean, if if it does take off and if it is successful in the way that they are hoping it could be, then I would I would have to imagine that they won't be the only ones to do something like this. Yeah, I mean the big bike brands. If they see this as a, as a successful model that makes money, they're they're going to hop on it, right? Because they want to access those customers as well. It's the same reason why Apple 
is willing to sell you an, an iPhone on a, on a monthly rate, right? Heck yeah. Because they've figured out that, that it's a better, that it's better business. Yeah, I mean, and, 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 and I would say as bikes continue to get more and more kind of like integrated and electrified and that sort of thing, like if I were in the market, I don't know if I would want to buy an e-bike like an e-mountain bike or e-road bike or something like that, if I know that the systems are changing all the time, like we're just in this period of massive, massive change. And, you know, I wouldn't want to necessarily sink all my money in that. I, I think in that sort of situation, it would make more sense to just pay to use someone else's bike and then just hand it off when I'm done with it because I don't want to be stuck with old technology. Yep. Well, we'll keep an eye on this. I think it's really interesting. Before we wrap up for today... A little announcement, something that we're quite proud of here at Cycling Tips. So you've heard us talk about Velo Club before. Uh, it is our membership program. It's a hugely, massively important part of what we do here at CT. It supports things like this podcast, supports a lot of our women's coverage, supports well, basically everything that we do at Cycling Tips. And our members occasionally do something that well, we just love. This was not from us. We did not start this. Our members got together on the Vela Club Slack and, and organized this themselves. Started pulling in donations for the Cyclist Alliance, which is the Women's Riders Union. Uh, sports riders in all kinds of areas uh, with, with legal issues, etc. Uh, you know, retirement, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Abby, you are, have been involved with cyclist alliance in the past uh, it's something that we are well it's an organization that we're sort of personally behind and it's really really cool to see our velo club members getting together and well and donating on their own organizing and donating on their own so we're just super proud of that fact uh donations are still open you can head over to cyclistalliance.org support dash us or just head over to cyclistlines.org and click on the support us button up at the top. Uh, all of that money goes to a really good place. And yeah, I just wanted to shout out our Velo Club members for pulling that together. It's a super, super cool thing. And with that, we're going to wrap up for today. We miss anything? No, I don't think we did. I think we talked about literally everything. Good job, team. All right, we'll be back next week with the news from Strada Bianca and other important things that happen between now and next Monday. All right, bye, everybody. Bye-bye.